What I want to share with you this morning is the topic of the Greatest Commission. You heard of the Great Commission. Uh, what I want to cover this morning is the Greatest Commission. It's found in the same text. So I'm going to start with the word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to know you, to serve you, and to find opportunities to grow in our understanding of how to share you with others. And so as we're focusing on evangelism this weekend, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would put a fire in our bones uh, for laboring for others, and that you would use us as your instrumentality to bless and comfort this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the goal of a disciple of Jesus? I don't know if you can read it from where you are. That's all my fault. I changed my slides. and it, Anyway, I'll read them to you if you can't see it. But in John chapter 17, verse 3, we're told that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is our goal as a disciple of Jesus, right, is to find eternal life in Jesus. And so that's, that's our goal. It's what we're longing for. And for the people that we disciple is to receive eternal life. And that's found in a genuine heartfelt surrender to Jesus, right? When we encounter his love, right? We love him because he first loved us, as 1 John uh, tells us. So the amazing thing to me, though, is John 17 and verse 3 says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he have sent. Do we have to wait until heaven to have that type of an experience? What do you think? No. You know what that tells me? That tells me that we can actually begin to experience the amazing beauty of eternal life right now. You don't have to wait until some distant, far-off time until Jesus comes. You can actually begin to enjoy that relationship now, and the relationship you're building now, you're carrying with you into an eternal existence. Does that make sense? It's actually available to you to know the God of heaven intimately and personally, to know Jesus intimately and personally, right? And so what makes heaven heaven is secure eternal fellowship with Jesus, not the scenery, right? What the roads look like, whether my dog will be there, though he is on my socks because I totally love him and stuff. Um, At the end of the day, what makes heaven heaven to me is that Jesus is there, And I never have to leave him. I never have to be separated from him. I never have to wonder if I'm ever going to be good enough. I can rest in his presence and never have to leave him. That's what makes heaven heaven to me. So it requires a paradigm shift, right? When we come into God's undying love for us and we receive that eternal life, something happens inside where that natural desire to just do me and get mine starts to change and our our priorities change to be more outward than just inward, right? That there's a greater need to those around us. This is something that's meant to happen in the life of believers. We find a love awakening inside of us for the people around us in our sphere of influence that wasn't there before. And our care and our concern for their eternal well-being grows, right? When we see how much God loves us, we come to realize, man, God must love the people around me in the same way, right? John 15 says this, that greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then Jesus says something that absolutely warms my heart. He says, and you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I again have called you friends. Don't you love that, guys? You can literally be a friend of Jesus. For all things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. So part of our call as being a disciple of Jesus is to be a friend of Jesus and a friend for Jesus. 
to be an ambassador for Christ. So when we become a child of God and even a friend of God, he again places love on our hearts for those around us, and it grows to the point that we would be willing to lay down our lives for another. You see how this works? You can't create that type of love, but you can receive it, and you receive it by first going to the source. Amen? I guess not. (laughs) Hey, Hey, all right. It was buffering. Sorry, I just missed it. So a good kind of death. Jesus died to show us our own need of dying. Did you know that? To realize what the fruit of our selfishness really is. He's wanting us to realize that we exist for a far greater purpose than just fulfilling our own wants and desires. We exist to be used by God in active service to others. A great example of this is a man named George Mueller. Anyone here heard of George Mueller? Powerful testimony, isn't it? Wikipedia is not research college students, just so you know, but it was a quick, easy resource. It gave a condensed version of his, uh, his background. I didn't go to college, so I can research wherever I want and not get in trouble. But anyway, George Mueller, it says, was well known for providing an education to the children under his care to the point where he was accused of raising the poor above their natural station in life. Would to God someone would accuse me of something like that, Amen. Accusing me of being dumb and not using my words wisely, that's warranted. But imagine someone saying this, right? Someone who's accused of raising the poor above their natural station in life. He also established 117 schools which offered Christian education to over 120,000 children, many of them being orphans. Amen? So what's the secret sauce? Like, what was his, what was his secret to success? Listen to what he says. Someone asked him, so how how did you get this form of success in the work that God's called you to do? He says, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have only to show myself approved to God. Isn't that amazing? A good kind of death. He continues, the child of God must be willing to be a channel through which God's bounties flow, both with regard to temporal and spiritual things. This channel is narrow and shallow at first, it may be, yet there is room for some of, if there is room for some of the waters of God's bounty to pass through. And if, the, if we cheerfully yield ourselves as channels for this purpose, then the channel becomes wider and deeper, and the waters of the bounty of God can pass through more abundantly. Don't you love this picture language here? That the more that we allow ourselves to be filled with God's love and we share that with others, it's like this good form of uh, erosion, right? It just gets deeper and wider. He can use us more and more because we're dying as we're giving and living for others. Do you see that? And the less of you there is, there's more room for him to bless and, and grow others around us. You following that? Love that. It's a good secret to success, isn't it? All right, we're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. This is 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite Pauline chapters. 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For the love of Christ compels us. Not the hope of reward or the fear of punishment. It's the love of Christ that compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. Why? That those who live should no longer live for themselves. Did you know that? Jesus died so that we would stop being selfish. (laughs) 
He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. And I love this, right? We no longer look at people for what we can get out of them, like commodities, right? I'll be nice to that guy because I may get a job if I'm nice to him. Oh, oh, yeah, I'll do this because then I'll feel good about myself. We don't view people as commodities. We don't view them according to the flesh for what we can get out of them. We view them based upon what Christ did for them to secure their eternal destiny. Amen? Our view of other people changes. Even though he says we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Many of us, what brought us to Christ initially were selfish reasons. A splitting hangover, a divorce, a family crisis, some other situation. God, if you just get me out of this mess, I'm full of yours. Sorry, people feel like I'm getting in their kitchen right now. But whatever your situation, your testimony may be, when we have those, the amazing thing is God meets us where we are. If you take any step in God's direction, he's more than happy to receive you. Amen? Jesus says in John chapter 6, that he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And I think that's one of the most beautiful sayings in Scripture, text of Scripture. It's amazing to me that if you come to Jesus, he's not going to push you away. Just come. Ellen White goes so far as to say, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, she went so far as to say that if you have nothing to offer God but this one promise from our Lord and Savior, that he who comes unto me, I will no wise cast out. She says, if you have nothing to offer God but that one promise, when you claim that promise, she says, we are as safe as though inside of the city of God. Amen? If that's all you got to offer Jesus, that you told me, you promised, that if I just come to you, you're not going to cast me out, that's enough. That's enough, she says. I love that. Paul continues. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what happens to them? They become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing, not crediting their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. If you weren't aware of this, Jesus did not come to convince the Father to have a posture of reconciliation towards you. That's not how this went down. It's because the Father already has a posture of reconciliation towards you that he sent Jesus. The real person's mind that needs to be changed is us. Paul tells us that the the human heart, right, the heart of the flesh, has enmity towards God. We naturally have hatred towards God and the things he wants because it crosses our own flesh. So what needs to change is not God's perspective towards me, it's my perspective towards God. And that's why Jesus came and God was in Jesus doing this work of reconciliation. Are you following that today? I absolutely love this. And we're called to be uh, ambassadors of this in verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So part of our call as a disciple of Jesus is to be an ambassador of reconciliation, pleading with people to be reconciled with God pleading with people to turn their eyes towards Jesus and to receive his healing grace and forgiveness, okay? Verse John chapter 3 and verse 11, what we heard from the beginning. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, 
Where does he get this idea? John 13, 34 to 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, is this the first time anyone in the Godhead has wanted humanity to love each other? Is it, did he wait for you know, thousands of years until Jesus came on earth? Oh, by the way, if you didn't know, we kind of prefer that you love each other. Do you think that's what he's saying here? No, he, he, he actually gives a qualifying statement. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, How? As I have loved you. Hey, that changes things a bit, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah, a lot, right? To like love, which we sometimes just view as tolerate, right? Whatever. It's not how it is biblically. But anyway, to love someone is one thing, but to love them in the same way in which God loves you, that's a game changer, guys. How many people in this room are capable of that in their own strength? I'm just curious. Have any superhumans in our midst here? Yeah, none of us. So it's going to require a divine transaction for you to be able to do that. But the only way in which that divine transaction could happen is if you were even willing for that to happen. Are you willing to open yourself to the degree to let God fill you with his love for the people around you, even the people that kind of get on your nerves a little bit? Right? This is our call as a disciple of Jesus, that we love one another as he has loved us that you also love one another, and by this we'll all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, he's speaking of the type of love where you love as he loves you. The world will know that you're disciples of Jesus when his beating heart is within your chest. That's how they'll know. And we need to recognize that we don't have that and we desperately need it if we're going to be effective in ministry for Christ. Right? We're going to need that. So how did Jesus love us? Ephesians 5 tells us that he gave himself for us, as well as Titus 2. He loved you to the end, John 13 tells us, in spite of who we've been. And in John 15 and verse 13, he laid down his life for us. This is what ministry is supposed to look like, right? Giving ourselves for others, loving them to the end, and laying down our lives for them. That's what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus and to make disciples for Jesus. Okay? So they have love for one another in the same way that Jesus loves them, and they love God more than anything on this earth. And the beautiful thing is, he's someone worth losing everything else for. Amen? That he's worth that. He's worth that dedication and that devotion. And this will lead us to love those around us. And that love will lead you to give your life for your brethren. Right? Those two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as... Now, I know I said I wasn't going to talk about mental health, but I just can't help myself. It, it, it dawned on me, I don't know how long ago, but some time ago, that this verse is really, really scary if you actually think through what it's saying. Because if I were to love my neighbor in the same way that I love me, the world would not become a better place. Are are you following me in that line of logic? Many of us are our own worst critics. And so I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. For me to be condemnatory and a jerk to my neighbor in the same way that I'm condemning and a jerk to my... I don't think that's what Jesus is saying which implies we're going to have to learn how to receive and believe the love that God has for us. As it says in 1 John chapter 4, that you may know and believe the love that God has for you and that you would treat yourself as God would treat you. To then in turn be able to love your neighbor as yours. Are you, are you following that, that line of logic there? 
Man, we are so hard on ourselves, and that verse is really scary to me if it were to be played out, thank God, through therapy and the love of Jesus and the gospel, my mind is changing, but that's a, that's a real thing. All right, Peter thought he loved Jesus this way. Okay, John 13, 37, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Oh, this is what you're looking for? Yeah, I'll totally do that, Jesus. Yeah, you got it. Uh, how did that work out for him? Yeah, not so great, right? He's denying Jesus in front of the servant girl at the door and also in front of John, by the way. In John's narrative, John goes inside of the house. The servant girl lets him in. He leads her to the door. She opens the door and then she asks Peter the question, hey, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? What does that imply? John is a disciple professedly. So she says, hey, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? What does Peter say? Nah. This is right in front of John, guys. And Peter struggled, right? He valued his own life above the call that he was given. And we're not beating up Peter. Is that you? Is that me? Yeah, we, we struggle with the same. Well, maybe you don't. You sound pretty stoic and <laughs> pious out there. Man, having hope's killing it, y'all. All right, John 12, verse 24 and 25. Most assuredly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat, Jesus speaking here, falls into the ground and does what? Dies, what happens to it? It remains alone. It doesn't multiply. It doesn't grow and expand. It dies. But if it dies, sorry, it produces much grain. If you want to have a truly effective ministry for God, it's going to start at your death, which really was preceded by his death. Amen? But it's going to stop with us dying to ourselves to then be available. Then we can bear much fruit. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, that very thing that we're striving for. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Then we get to Peter uh, kind of being affirmed in John chapter 21 after his thrice denial of Jesus. Jesus comes up to him and says, Peter, do you love me? And the word he uses here is the word agape. Do you have perfect, unselfish love for me? And Peter's response is, yes, Lord, I phileo you. I have weak human love for you. Notice, Peter thought he had it all together previously. Now Jesus asked him, hey, so what do you bring to the table? Do you have this? And Peter says, not that, but here's what I do have. He asked him again, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I phileo you. And the third time he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. And I love this, that Jesus meets the man where he is because Peter has finally come to understand his true condition. He's finally come to understand what he doesn't bring to the table. And as this happens, the amazing thing to me is Peter finally dies. And this is when his ministry brings great fruit, right? The Pentecost sermon comes after this process. I think it's an amazing lesson for us today, isn't it? Some of us, we think we have it together. We think we've arrived. And the reminder to the Laodicean church is you're not who you think you are. At every aspect of your being, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and otherwise, you're not who you think you are. But the good news is I'm offering you a solution in myself, Jesus says. I'm not asking you to figure it out. I have what you need. I counsel you to buy of me. Gold tried in the fire, a faith that works by love. White raiment, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the last one's a hard one for you and I. It's the eye salve spiritual discernment to see our true condition so that we will let him in and do what he wants to do for us. So the seed died and bore much fruit. 
Listen to this weird statement Jesus makes in John 17. He's praying to the Father, says, Father, I've glorified you on the earth. And then he says, I've finished the work which you've given me to do. This is before Calvary. It is finished? But like Jesus hasn't died yet. What's he talking about here? David Platt, in his book, Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream, addresses this. It's a big punch in the face for American Christianity, and we could honestly use it. So what he says, he says, Jesus lived for them, meaning the disciples. During his earthly ministry, he spent more time on earth with these 12 men than with everyone else in the world put together. This is astonishing when you really think about it. At the end of the Son of God's time on earth, he had staked everything on his relationships with 12 men. In the middle of his prayer, he even mentions that one of them, Judas, is lost. So now we're down to 11. These 11 guys were the small group, we'll talk about that this afternoon, responsible for carrying on everything that Jesus had begun. One of his final moments with them is captured in Matthew chapter 28. The 11 gathered together and Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Platt brings it home. He says, after intentionally spending his life on earth with these 11 men, Jesus told them, now you go out and do the same with others. The mega strategy of Jesus make disciples. Quite a risk, isn't it? To put your whole life's work in the hands of 11 guys that may or may not carry it out. Jesus felt that this was a risk worth taking. He felt that it was a work worth doing, and it's a hard work as we'll see here, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, you therefore, my son, Paul discipling Timothy, says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see how this process works? Someone disciples another, not just for that individual's edification, but so that they would disciple others. The kingdom of heaven is meant to advance through multiplication, right? And now we get to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me. Should that encourage somebody? If Jesus is about to tell you what to do, and he starts the conversation by saying, by the way, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me, would that encourage you just a little bit? That the person who's about to give you a job to do actually has all authority and all power in the very place where you're to do that work? So he starts with affirmation, okay? Then he tells them what to do. Go, therefore, because I have this authority, and do what? Make disciples. Some of you may have the King James Version that says, Go, therefore, and teach all nations. That's not actually how the original language reads. It's actually make disciples. Okay? Make disciples. Then you'll baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you keep teaching them after they're baptized to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He closes with affirmation again. You're not alone in this journey. Don't you love that? I have all power and all authority, and you're not alone in this journey. So because of this good news, I need you to do something for me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Notice the goal of Jesus is not baptism. I didn't stutter. Did you hear that this morning? The goal of Jesus is not baptism. The goal of Jesus is discipleship. And the logical fruit of biblical discipleship is... They'll be baptized, but your job isn't over when they go under. You know that too, right? Once they're baptized, we're to keep teaching them the things that he's commanded us. 
This is so important. If we don't get this right, we'll continue to have the statistics that are blood-curdling within Adventism, that people walk in the door and then leave. Why? It's because we're not understanding the greatest of commissions. It wasn't baptizing people. It was making disciples, making lifelong friends of Jesus, or lifelong friends for Jesus as a friend of Jesus. Amen? That's your calling, guys. And the logical fruit of that personal effort is going to be baptisms, right? I just had people make decisions for baptism in evangelistic series I just did. We still lead people to do that, but we're discipling them, right? My students were studying with them. The church members are taking over those studies and continuing to disciple them. That's the point, okay? But the truth about discipleship is this. It's difficult. That's why we don't do it. It's so much easier to put a book in someone's hand and leave. And by the way, we're told there's a tremendous power in that work, that a sermon may easily be forgotten, but a book remains. Amen? We're promised there's a blessing in that. But our calling is more than just that. Are you understanding the difference? We train our students in literature evangelism. They do that work. But we're called to more than just literature distribution or glow track distribution. We're called to make disciples for Jesus. But it's a difficult work. A woman, when she's in labor, Jesus says, there's an analogy here, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. Yes, it was difficult to get to this point of delivery, but once you stare that child in the eyes, once you see that new child of God coming out of that water, whatever it cost to get to this place was worth it. Amen? And if you've ever won souls for Jesus, you know exactly what that feels like. To lead someone, to have the privilege to lead someone from no faith to having their own personal faith that's theirs. It isn't borrowed from you and your charisma and your knowledge of the Bible, but they're coming to know and receive and believe them for themselves is a beautiful and powerful experience. It's difficult, but it's worth it. For joy that a human being has been born in the world. Therefore, Jesus says, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one can take from you. And I absolutely love this promise that we're given. So true biblical discipleship then is laying down your life for someone until they can stand on their own spiritually. And that takes as long as it takes. There's no such thing as microwave evangelism. And this is why discipleship is hard. It takes time. You may study with someone and invest in someone for years until they make a lifelong commitment for Jesus and for baptism. So what? Do you give up on your kids because they're not perfect after nine months of them being in your home? No, you get like arrested and stuff for something like that. But yet we have the same level of impatience with soul winning when these are spiritual babes. Are you following me today, guys? The call to win souls and to make disciples is a long game. It's not a short game. Now, hey, come to these meetings, get baptized, and I'm going to go back to work now. That's not what this is. In fact, public meetings are supposed to be a time in which you reap investments that you've already been making. If your evangelism looks like you just doing an evangelistic series, walking to a cold neighbor's door, handing them a flyer, they show up and get baptized, that's not really the ideal way to go about this. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that this afternoon. That like God is working in spite of us. God is working in spite of our cold, indifferent hearts and is still leading people to truth. But is that the ideal call? No. God's call for us is to be engaging in genuine labor for the people around us as long as it takes. Now, they may walk away. They may say, never talk to me about this again. And we have to honor boundaries and so forth, but we can keep praying. Amen? 
and things can change potentially. So I'm not saying that you need to be like creepy and like all over these people until they get baptized. It's not what we're saying, but you need to commit in your heart and in your mind, I'm not going to set a timeline for this investment. I'm going to love this person and bless them and invest in them whether they ever come around or not, because that's how Jesus did life. There's a phrase that Ellen White used about the work of Jesus in Desire of Ages. It was called disinterested benevolence. That Jesus was literally in the business of loving and blessing people whether they came around or not. He didn't have ulterior motives like, oh man, I should start being nice to my coworkers so they'll come to my church. That's not evangelism. That's selfishness and ignorance. We should be nice to the people we work with because they're children of God. We should long for them to know Jesus because it will improve their quality of life, not because they'll come to church and it'll look like I did something. Are you understanding the difference? Right? We're called to love and care for people and support them and nurture them, whether they come around or not, because that's what he did. Jesus didn't say, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. Before I give too much of my life to you, are you going to get baptized? Because like, I, I only have so much to give. My, it's just, I, I, I can't budget for that. I'm thankful that Jesus didn't make that decision. Amen? Right? I, was, I was one of those people who was stubborn and obstinate and took a long time to get into the boat. But I'm thankful that Jesus never gave up on me. And I want to close with this type of story. My first is my own conversion. My dad, uh, I grew up in a kind of a broken home environment. My parents got divorced when I was early. My mom uh, had some serious bout of domestic violence that was really impactful to me. Lots of trauma and brokenness in my upbringing. My mom had you know, multiple marriages and divorces. Thank God Jesus is husband number eight. Amen? It's been a difficult journey for her, but I thank God for what he's doing in her life. But I was a broken mess, numbing pain in a really rough place in life. And my dad, when the September 11th attacks happened, this is a crazy thing to me. There's people potentially who are in college right now who maybe weren't even alive when that happened. We're getting close. Like I preach at academies and I talk about 9-11. They're like, that might as well be World War II or something. I'm thinking to myself, oh my Lord, what has happened? I was in high school when that happened. Ugh. Anyway. As you can tell, I'm having this, like, just past the technical young adult phase. And I'm like, who am I? Where am I? Who, who are my peeps? Like, I, uh. So, but anyway, when 9-11 happened, my dad realized the world was ending and he wasn't ready. And unbeknownst to me, because I'm a lost teenager numbing pain, my dad gives his life to Jesus. And I'm clueless, guys, for nearly three years. And in the summer of 2004, after I graduated high school... My dad started showing me love in a way I'd never experienced before. And it wasn't because he didn't love me. It's because the love of God was in his heart. And when I encountered that, it was contagious, it was attractive, and I wanted what he had, and I didn't care what it was going to cost to get it. What I didn't know was I had a lot of dying to do, and I didn't really want to do that. Uh, Shion was doing a great job of Sabbath school up there in the top corner. Woo! He's getting married soon, y'all. It's true. They just got married. And they're getting married soon, too. This is amazing. Love is in the air, as the great poet philosopher Tom Jones once said, I think. Um, I think it was Tom Jones. Anyway, talking about this in James, right, this kind of double-mindedness that we can have, that was my story. I was like wanting to follow God, but I didn't want to give up the pain pills because it's what got me through so much of my life. It's a difficult process. And my dad never gave up on me. I would not be a minister of the gospel, let alone a converted Christian, were it not for the fact that this man kept loving me and blessing me and investing in me when I gave him so many reasons to just cash out his chips and move on. I wouldn't be here, guys. I wish I could say God spoke and it was so when I was a converted Christian. That wasn't my story. 
It was multiple years of brokenness and selfishness and an unwillingness to fully give myself to God while trying to follow God. It was messy. And this man never gave up on me. And I learned a valuable lesson through that process that this is what making disciples looks like, first of all, and that that's how God does life. My dad not giving up on me helped me to realize that God hadn't given up on me. That all the stuff I had done, all the things I kept running to, all of my double-mindedness did not keep God from loving me and pursuing me. This is what discipleship looks like, guys. You keep loving, you keep giving, you keep supporting until they can stand on their own spiritually, but even then your job's not done. Keep blessing them. Keep ministering. Keep making yourself available. There's going to come these days when you're laboring for people, you think they got it. And a week goes by, and they call you, and it is literally as if you've never talked about anything, and they're right back where they started. And you get frustrated and disappointed. By the way, I hear this is what it's like having kids and stuff, so just get ready. It looks like that. That's what I hear. I'm a dog dad, and um, it's, uh, that's hard too, but probably not quite as hard as you know, giving birth to humans and stuff, but... Still quite. There was a season in his life where he was teething, going through puberty, and potty training. It was awful. And I thought to myself, if having kids is anything like this, it's really hard. Um, maybe that's why Ellen White says that one of the ways we can learn to be like Jesus is through caring for animals and gardening, because it's not your timeline, right? Uh, at least pants don't tear up your couch and pee on the floor, but they, they yeah, anyway, it's still hard work. It's good for your character. So this is the beautiful thing about discipleship. It's not only rewarding right, to put in the work and see someone stand on their own, but like literally you have empowered a human to do life with Jesus. How amazing is that, right? This idea of teaching a man to fish and he'll live for a lifetime or whatever it says. Imagine teaching someone to know Jesus for themselves. What a gift. What a privilege. It's the greatest work of my life. My program is a discipleship program. We pour our lives into these young people for nine months, to help them make their own experience with Jesus so they can stand on their own with it. That's what we're about, right? That's what life is about. I want to close with the story of Buddy. My dog's name is Buddy. Again, he's endearingly on my socks. My roommate got them for me for Christmas. Brilliant gift. Take notes out there. If you've got a roommate, loves their dog, get them some socks on Amazon that look like their dog. There's fat labs and there's labs that look like my lab. And this one looked just like him. Didn't have the big block head. He's a good looking dude. They, they look just like him. It's crazy. So I want to tell you why I named him Buddy. When I graduated from the Arise program about 11 years ago, I say about, it's a little bit over 11 years ago, when I graduated from the Arise program, uh, life got difficult for dad and I as we were following Jesus and accepting truth. Our house got foreclosed, a car got repossessed, and as I was at the Arise program, things didn't turn around financially. My dad actually went to a homeless shelter. So imagine, I'm at a rise, I couldn't even afford to get there, and as I'm graduating, I can't even afford to get home, and I don't actually have a home when I leave. And so what I end up doing, my pastor buys a plane ticket, I fly to St. Louis, and I had like $8 to my name, and I used five of them to get a, a metro ticket to go from the airport to downtown St. Louis to go to the homeless shelter where my dad had been. He was at one of their satellite locations in central Missouri, but um, so imagine, it's like early, late December, mid-December, I'm walking through the streets, it's crazy cold outside, and thank God no one had to like rob me or beat me up and steal my stuff because it's too cold to be outside. And I get to the homeless shelter, they don't let people in at night, but they let me in because my dad called ahead, and I didn't have a cell phone. This is a blast from the past. I had Magic Jack. Does anybody even know what that is? Magic Jack? Oh, it brings you back, doesn't it? 
and Google Voice. So that's the way I did my phone stuff. But the St. Louis airport was like the worst airport in the history of humanity. They had to pay for the Wi-Fi. Who does that? So I couldn't make any phone calls from the airport. So I just had to hope that my dad did call and they'll let me in. Otherwise, I'm on the street that night. So I got my certificate of excellence in hand, walking through the streets of St. Louis. I don't have a GPS. I'm going in the directions he gave me from the metro station I should get off at. It's crazy. They let me in, thankfully. Uh, stay there a couple days, get to where my dad was. And one of my responsibilities at this homeless shelter was to do prison correspondence. It was a ministry. I use that lightly. And the other thing was to take care of the sheep. Can you imagine this like hotshot kid coming out of Bible college thinking he can win the world and God gives me the Moses treatment. I'm homeless and I'm taking care of sheep. This is a true story. This is all 100% true. One of the best experiences of my life. So I'm taking care of these sheep and the sheep can fight sometimes. The slides look terrible, sorry, but there's a picture there. And so they're different kind of looking sheep. There's a few pictures here of, uh, do you see his little nubs? You see the little like nubby horn thingies he's got? So it's a boy. And um, so on the evening of April 5th, uh, 2011, um, they fight. And when they fight, sometimes they get stingers, you know, in like their neck and their legs. So one of the sheep, uh, I had to tell the story quickly. Uh, okay, so when they fight, some, what happens is when we start to feed them, we we're feeding them bread, by the way, from all the bakeries around St. Louis. So imagine I'm feeding sheep bread. There's like all these spiritual parallels while I'm going through this. Yeah, I, I couldn't write this stuff. And uh, though there's a sermon about this, it's called Whose Flock Is This? It's on Audioverse. So about all my experiences there. So I'm taking care of these sheep. And uh, so we would feed them and the moms would bail on their kids, run and eat the food. And then when they're done eating, they're like, wait a minute, where are my kids? Blah. And then the babies cry on the other side. They sound just like babies crying. They would cry and then they'd be like the slow motion running through the field, reunited and it feels so good. This happens every meal. <laughs> and so, so this happened and the baby isn't crying back. And so they come and so we're kind of, you know, I, I walk out to the field. I see that this little guy's on the ground. He's kind of sitting like a cat or a dog with their legs under them and the heads up. So I walk out there. It's like, hey man, what's going on? He said nothing. Can you believe how rude he was? And so I kind of push him on his side. Nothing happens. I pick him up under his legs, lift him up, and his legs are like spaghetti noodles. This, this little lamb, he's paralyzed. It's like, I can't leave him out here. The coyotes are going to get to him. So I put him in this little like cage thing they had in the horse barn. And the first day, you may think I'm crazy. I don't really care. I leave tomorrow. Um, but so I, did, I knew that this had to matter to me because the lessons that God was teaching me while taking care of the sheep were lessons I was learning about the church and God's people object lessons. I've never forgotten them. And so I go back to the guy's dorm. I get some olive oil. I come back and I put oil on his head and I pray for him, this little lamb. This is a true story. And, and every day, three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I'd go out, I'd pet him, I'd pray over him. I'd take his bedding out because he'd pee and poop all over himself, replace the new bedding. I would have to hand feed him. Um... Can you see it? Yeah. So I'd have to hand feed him bread. I don't know if you can see it here or what's even going on in this video. Oh, man, you don't want to hear me. Uh, let's see. There we go. So I had to hand feed him bread. And I'd bring like shoots of grass in there and he'd eat them. So he'd chew, look at him. The little, eat, little guy is eating bread. And then I'd bring a water bottle and I'd give him water and kind of helped to take care of him. And I did this every day, okay, every day. In the span of like four or five days, his front shoulder starts to move. And 
I keep praying, I keep investing in them, I keep laboring for them, but I find out my aunt has cancer and my dad and I are trying to get closer to our family to try to, you know, be close to them because we're learning all these beautiful things. We want them to know that. And so I'm about to leave and I keep praying, God, please help Buddy. Please heal Buddy. Please heal Buddy. A few more days go by and he now has mobility in all four of his legs. He was good as dead, right? And the guys told me, just leave him for dead. Who cares? He said, this doesn't mess up my work. Leave me alone. And so I kept investing in this little guy. <laughs> He's drooling all over himself. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I'm going through this process of just, you know, continue to labor for him. And like the day before I'm supposed to leave to get on a train and go back home, I pick Buddy up by his legs or under his belly, and then he puts his four legs out, and I start to release his weight onto his legs so he can stand or I can see if he can stand. And he holds for a second. I'm still holding him to support him. He holds for a second, then his legs shake, and he collapses. He's just not quite strong enough to stand on his own. He's so close, but he just can't stand on his own. And another day goes, it's the last day I'm leaving, and I tell one of the other guys, only one of the guy really cared for the sheep, the rest were jerks. He like threw bagels at them, and they were just, we do that too, by the way, don't we? Throwing the word of God at people, who cares whether they receive it or not? I did my job. <clears throat> and so again, all kinds of spiritual lessons from this. So I take him out, you know, put him in the sun, let him chew on the grass, and so uh, the last day, as I'm about to get in the car to be taken to the train station one last time, God, please heal Buddy. I was just pleading with God, please heal him. And I pick him up again. I release him down. He puts his four legs out, and I start to release his weight onto his legs. And he holds for a second, holds for a second, and then his legs start to shake, and he collapses. He wasn't quite able to stand on his own, and I leave. And when I get back to Illinois, I tell Dave, like, hey, please take care of him. He's almost there. Just keep taking care. Now, is he going to pray for him? No, right? Sounds kind of crazy to most people, maybe even you. Um, and so in the span of like a week and a half, he went from totally paralyzed to mobility in all four of his legs. He would have been dead had this investment not happened. And I knew it, and it mattered so much to me. But I had to leave. So I leave. I sleep in my car one night. My grandma puts me up in a hotel, sleep in my car another night, stay in my pastor's apartment for a night. And then eventually this couple lets me stay in their home. My dad was living in Joplin, Missouri. You know, anyone hear about the tornado that hit Joplin, Missouri some years ago? My dad was in Joplin and left like three days before that happened to join me. And so he gets back to where I am, all this crazy stuff. We were living in a tent on this guy's property for a while. It, oh my goodness, I can't even tell you that story. Like nailed this like anathema like thing on our door with a crucifix. It was one of the most crazy, on a tree outside of our tent. It was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. He didn't think Paul was really converted, so he called us followers of Paul. Oh my goodness, but the guy let us stay on his property. It was a blessing, so we stayed there uh, later. So anyway, I'm scrambling, trying to just get on my feet. And so about a week or a week and a half goes by and I, I always want to say warden. This wasn't a prison. Uh, the, the, the supervisor of the work that we were doing there, I text him. I was like, hey, how's Buddy doing? And the response I got from him was this. Sorry, Buddy died. And I immediately knew why. I left. Buddy died because I left before he could stand on his own. Now, I'm thankful for the fact that this is a dumb animal at the end of the day. 
God loves the animals, wants us to treat them with respect and so forth. This wasn't a soul for the kingdom. This was an animal in rural Missouri. But I learned a lesson that day that I will never forget for the rest of my life. And the lesson is this. People matter to God, and He needs them to matter to us. And this work of discipleship and laboring for souls is not a hobby where you're building a model airplane, collecting stamps or baseball cards, and you pick it up and set it down whenever you want. You're playing the long game, guys. And it needs to matter to us because there are people just like me out there who aren't going to come around right away. They're fighting inherited and cultivated tendencies, and it's a journey. Now, we do need to say this with a measure of like caution and so forth, like, ladies, you need to make sure that you're safe in a situation, right? We're not looking for you to run into codependent or dangerous situations and so forth. We're talking about in a larger picture principle, you need to pray through, like, is this person just using you to get money to do this or do that? You have to work through that process, right? I understand that. I'm not being an idealist. But there is a very real sense in which many of us are giving up on people before they're able to come around, and they would have come around. And in short, it's because we don't really care. The good feelings we got from serving or helping somebody get eclipsed by the difficulty of the long game, and some of us quit. And Jesus is calling us to something bigger and deeper than that. Are you with me today, guys? The work of soul winning and a discipleship is a long-term game, but it's worth it. And your joy no man can take from you. When you see them in that baptism tank, when you see them walking in Jesus, doing the Lord's work, right? When you labor for people and see them standing on their own spiritually, making moral decisions and succeeding in God's work, there's nothing better in the world. Parents, you're discipling your children. That's what you're doing, right? The word discipline comes from that root word. Discipleship comes from that root word. In fact, discipling isn't actually a word. It would be disciplining. That's what this journey is about, but I'm telling you guys, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Father in heaven, I thank you that you sent Jesus to play the long game, that he's doing a work in, through, and for us through the life he lived on this earth, through the example of discipleship that he gave, and through the spirit whom he sent on his behalf. And we're so thankful for this that we're not doing this work alone, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are doing a mighty redemptive work for the benefit of humanity, and you're wooing and drawing each of us to yourself. But as we learned last night, you're also having angels use human instrumentalities to do their work of wooing and leading others to Christ, that we can be co-laborers in this effort. God, what a privilege. There are far more qualified beings in the universe for this work, and yet you're asking me? You're asking my friends here today, Lord, I pray that we would value the greatest of commissions to make disciples. I pray that there are people here right now, this morning, who are hearing your call to be intentional in living and giving for others in systematic benevolence, uh, in disinterested benevolence, I should say, in living and giving for the benefit of others and pointing them to you. If you're hearing the call of Jesus today, that this is what I need to do, this is the privilege that I have to engage in, I just want to invite you to raise your hands to heaven today. God, I hear your call, that you died so that I would not live for myself, but for him who died and gave himself for me. Lord, I'm giving my life into your hands to be used to bless and support and minister to others. Lord, give me your love, your long-suffering love towards those that I'm called to invest in. And I sign up for this privilege to follow you in leading others to the foot of the cross. 
and to the love of their lives, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would cover our sins of indifference, of selfishness, and that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us your love for the people around us. This is our plea today, Lord, and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, my dad is doing great, running a house, doing a great work for God and investing in the elderly. I always forget to give updates on some of these stories. The Lord has blessed him and ministered to him. Things are much better now. But um, those seasons taught us a lot, and I'm so thankful for that. And if you're struggling, if you're in a difficult place right now, Jesus is in the business of keeping his promises and providing for his people. Amen? Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.